and welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. Is your PDA child's challenging behavior a lack of skills or a lack of felt safety? So what do I mean by felt safety? Felt safety is the subconscious perception that you are safe, okay? And it comes from the survival brain through what's called neuroception. And that is happening on a subconscious level that we're not even aware of, okay? So today, I wanna invite you guys to experiment with seven practical tips that are actual skills to help us signal safety to the survival brain and the neuroception of your PDA child or teen. But we're gonna start with the logic so we understand why we're doing it, okay? So often where parents get stuck and teachers get stuck and therapists get stuck when they're working with a PDA child or teen is that the assumption of what's driving the behavior is either a lack of skills that the child doesn't know how to act, how, so we need to teach them, or they're not motivated to have the correct behavior and so we need to incentivize that with rewards or sanctions, okay? So that's the logic of most of traditional parenting, teaching, education, and therapy. And in some cases, this is accurate, right? Like for a lot of kids, these approaches work of teaching the skills or incentivizing the behavior because they're frontal lobe strategies right? The frontal lobe is the part of the brain that is more evolutionarily developed. And that's where children can access and humans can access rational thought, understanding cause and effect. A lot of communication comes from there. They can access empathy, etc. But what happens if you have a child like you do, (laughs) who is a PDA child and operating mostly from the survival brain, which is really not a fully conscious place? part of the brain, right? It is the survival part. It is responding and reacting to the cues in the environment that signal as a mammal, you're safe or you're going to die, okay? And so when we use behavioral or teaching strategies, when a child is mostly operating from this survival part of the brain, it's going to backfire, okay? So let's talk a little bit about the nervous system and the root cause. So for our kids, the PDA kids and teens, the survival brain is perceiving threat most of the time, and the root cause of what is activating the nervous system as like, there's a lion in front of me, nervous system, go into fight, flight, freeze, or shut down, is the perception of, I don't have a choice, there's no freedom, I don't have autonomy, But this is happening on a subconscious neuroceptive level, right? So not even perceiving in the sense that there's some awareness, but on a subconscious level, okay? The other reason is that the child or teen perceives that you, a teacher, a sibling, a friend, a situation is above them, signaling danger, okay? So that's the root cause of a PDA threat detection, 
okay? But what I'm going to talk about is very applicable to other neurodivergent children and traumatized children. The root cause that's setting off the nervous system might be different. Like for a non-PDA autistic child, it might be sensory that's setting off the perception of threat or social communication differences and negative, constant negative feedback setting off the nervous system. But for PDA, the primary lens we wanna be looking through is the perceived lack of autonomy and equality or being above that's setting off this nervous system response. So if we think about the nervous system and the most up-to-date research and theory on the nervous system is that it's hierarchical. So what does that mean? That means your body's gonna first go into fight flight right? Which is like the more aggressive behavior you see from your child, the equalizing, the controlling, the like, stop talking, you're an idiot, you can't sit here screaming, growling, destroying things, eloping or running out the front door or away from you, climbing on the top of the car when they don't want to go to school. Often parents describe this fight flight as like a feral animal or a wild animal, okay? And that's exactly what it is because we're all mammals and the child is perceiving they're gonna die, right? So yes, they're reverting back to their mammalian self as any of us as parents would do if we were perceiving we're going to die, if we were held up in a dark alley or we're in a car crash, our body is going to perceive danger without us being in control of it or even our conscious awareness. And we're going to move into fight flight. But then the next stage down the hierarchy is a freeze state which is an actually a hybrid state. So what do I mean by a hybrid state? So fight flight is very mobilized, right? We see the behavior, but the mobilization that's physiological in the body is actually impacting everything inside your kid, right? Like adrenaline's racing, cortisol is going, the muscles are tightening and getting ready to fight or flight. Their metabolism is speeding up. So this is why we have diarrhea or nausea and can't eat when our nervous system is activated, right? Then we're having accidents or we can't sleep, right? We can't eat, we can't sleep. We're having toileting accidents. This is the basic needs aspect, the physiological aspect that often doesn't get talked about because it's all related to the nervous system, okay? So metabolically and physiologically, a lot's going on with your kid and the nervous system, okay? So in freeze, we have that mobilization a hybrid state of like metabolism speeding up, you know, really alert, like focused eyes and vision, blood's rushing to the extremities, the adrenaline's going off, the cortisol's going off, etc. But there's also a shutdown element to it, okay? So it's like there's mobilization, but they're frozen, like a deer in the headlights. And this might be how they are at school, right? So it's not disruptive, to the teacher and they seem like they're paying attention, but they might literally just be a deer in the headlights and all that stuff is going on inside of them. And then when a mammal, which we all are, perceives like I can't fight the lion and I can't run fast enough to get away, I'm gonna feign dead. I'm gonna fawn or shut down or collapse. Okay, so again, this is from the survival brain. It's not a conscious choice. It's just what the brain is doing to stay alive, okay? And it can seem as a parent hard to believe that all of this is going on for your kid because you're like, well, I'm just doing normal stuff, right? Like I'm just trying to get to them, them to school or buckle them into their car seat or play a game where 
sometimes they don't win every time, right? So the reaction we have as parents is like, they're totally safe. They're not traumatized. Like they have everything they could possibly want. Like why is there this nervous system reaction, right? But this is where the neuroception of the survival brain of the neurotype of PDA is unique because even if we don't see the lion, their subconscious is detecting it. So when we get into the shutdown, it's like that's when we see the turtle shell, the collapse, the selective mutism, no longer talking, the I can't walk, I can't get out of bed, the negative self-talk, the I don't want to be alive, because it's the perception of like there's no hope, I'm feigning dead. And this has a physiological and metabolic response, okay? So it's not just the behavior. It's like my metabolism is slowing down, which can cause constipation and and caprices. You know, blood is rushing to the core. You can even have endorphins, which come with like a shock state. So this is impacting the body and the basic needs, not just the behavior. But we don't see what's going on in the body, so we have to talk about the logic of the nervous system. Okay, so as you're hearing this, you're probably like, well, Casey, this is this is terrible, right? <laughs> it's terrible that my kid's experiencing this. What do I do? Okay, so what I want to do is first frame this as, again, your child's behavior that's challenging, disruptive, defiant, shutting down, what we perceive as severe anxiety, may not be due to a lack of skills that we need to teach or behavior that we need to incentivize, but rather a lack of felt safety in the environment, perceived safety, okay? So what we can do as parents where our agency is and where I've had a lot of success with the families I've worked with and my son is deliberately and intentionally signaling safety mammal to mammal, okay? So often when we talk about co-regulation, it's like lots of verbal talking and scaffolding and like sharing the demand so that they do something. And we wanna go a level deeper. So there's nothing wrong with that type of co-regulation, but if your child is anywhere close to burnout or in that constant state of activation and mostly in their survival brain, we have to work with the survival brain. Okay, so here are seven practical tips that you can start practicing as a skill, as a parent or a teacher or a therapist or whoever you are, and this will support signaling that safety to the subconscious brain, okay? So I have my list here. Seven tips to experiment with in the home and then observe what shift, shifts. Okay, mammal to mammal. So the first two have to do with your body. And I want to caveat, everything I'm going to say is not going to be what your body wants to do naturally because you are activated. (laughs) Your body's in fight or flight a lot of the time with a PDA child because you're perceiving subconsciously threat because your child's screaming. They're not thriving. They're refusing school. And, you know, they're giving you negative feedback as a parent. And so, and they're melting down. So you're like, Your brain is like going into fight or flight too, and then we're signaling that back to them. So we have to start overriding it deliberately to the best of our ability, even if we don't feel it, right? Even if we don't feel it in our own bodies. First two are with your body. So the first is very simple. It's experimenting with getting physically below your child or teen so that we're preempting that perception that we're above them or even that we're equal to them. We wanna give them the perception that they're above us. 
so that in the most evolutionary and survival-based way, they're dominant, right? So like in their reptilian brain, they're above us, so they're in control and not in danger. That's how I think of it, okay? So what does this mean? It means when your child's watching an iPad, you can sit on the ground next to them while they're on the couch. Maybe your teen's spending a lot of time in their room. You can sit on the ground within eye shot, maybe not too close, but below them, you can allow your child to walk on the backs of couches or climb even onto a car if it's safe. So for example, like two and a half years ago when we started experimenting with the parents having dinner, even if we were not expecting the children <laughs> to participate, we allowed my son to go outside, autonomy, and within our eyeshot, climb on top of our Ford Focus. So, you know, not a like super fancy car. I was like, you know, if the windshield wipers break, we'll order new ones. But he would get up there with a blanket and just be above, right? And it regulated him on a mammal to mammal level of like, mom and dad are doing something that I don't want them to do. And in the past, he had prevented us from eating, but he got back to a place of safety by the autonomy of going outside and breaking a little rule of like, you know, you don't really climb on top of cars and being physically above, okay? So that's the first thing that you guys can experiment with of like physically putting yourself on the ground when you're talking to them. You know, I do this with my younger son too, of like crouching down at his level rather than hovering over him because he's an anxious kid. So he's got sensitive neuroception, allowing and even encouraging creative ways that your child or teen can physically be above you, right? And you can make it playful if you want. So that's number one. Two, be cognizant of your movements, especially in a moment of like real activation, okay? So when your child is activated, mammal to mammal as a parent, you're gonna be activated, okay? And sometimes when we're activated, I know for myself, like I tense up, my jaw clenches, I move faster, right? So we wanna make sure we're paying attention to our trunk and our limbs and we're not moving too quickly right? So like the deliberate action can be to just try and like slow yourself down. So one of the images I help myself with that also I've gotten from my yoga practice is like, imagine your body moving through molasses, right? There's like some resistance and you're just deliberately slowing your body down. And this will also help your activation when you're in those moments of stress. So those are the first two body-based tips to experiment with. Three, remember, you don't have to feel happy about this situation. We're practicing the body, facial, and tonal signals of safety, even if you're really frustrated, right? And so this is where we find our agency because we can't necessarily stop our emotions, our thoughts, our feelings. They're going to bubble up and bubble out, but we can choose what we do with our behavior in the moment. Okay, so this is hopefully instilling a sense of agency in you as a parent of a PDA child. Okay, so next we have the face. I'm currently in a polyvagal theory certificate program at the Polyvagal Institute, and I'm learning about the science behind all of this nervous system stuff, which is why I'm so excited to share it with you. So 
One of the things we've talked about is the face. So Stephen Porges, the father of polybagel theory, check him out if you don't know who it is, says that the face is the window to your heart. Okay, so you're basically wearing your heart on your face. And when we're in safe and social, or what's called ventral vagal, when we're perceiving safety, we have access to movement to this part of our face. Okay, so when you're in or a child is in a completely activated nervous system stressful state, they actually might not be able to move this part of their face. Okay, because that's the safe and social part. And I want to just give you guys an anecdote because I had this like aha moment, which was when I was in graduate school in New York City, I started having very, very severe panic attacks that were debilitating. Like I thought I was having heart attacks and you know, I had to get on medication, I started therapy, I started yoga, all the things. But as I was like coming out of such an activated state, I could not smile or use this part of like my face. It was like frozen. Okay, so I would try and smile and I'd be like, because I like couldn't use the muscles because I was so activated in my nervous system. And as I'm learning about the social engagement system of the nervous system, I'm like, oh, that makes total sense. Like why I was frozen there, right? And then I worked with an occupational therapist to do the safe and sound protocol. And I brought pictures of me and my son and she pointed out like at different ages, she saw the same smile, but no movement in the upper part of my face because I was like straining through the smile. So these anecdotes are just to help you remember the concept. But what we can do to the extent we can is signal deliberate safety through our face with movement, right? Smiles, crinkled eyes, you know, movement with your eyebrows and forehead to show, hey, I'm safe in my body. I'm signaling safety to you. And a lot of PDA kids and teens perceive neutral facial expressions as threatening. So we may need to pay attention to how we're engaging with our face. And if you're neurodivergent, autistic, PDA, this is going to be a little bit more challenging, right? Because you have to be more aware of your facial expressions that might not feel natural to you. And what I will say, like, if you're like, I'm, you're listening to me and you're like, Casey, too much. <laughs> be like, Okay, number three, the face, we're going to put on the back burner and I'm going to focus more on my vocal tone, which we're going to talk about, right? So these are seven tips, which I'll review at the end, to pick and choose to start experimenting with, okay? So don't feel like I'm saying, if you aren't able to express your face deliberately all the time as happy, then your kid's never going to be okay. That's not what I'm saying at all, okay? Number four, and now we're moving in to speech, okay? So more voice than what we're saying. So the first thing we want to think about is reducing speech, okay? So not just not asking questions, which can set off the nervous system because it's a, a perceived lack of autonomy and equality where it's like you're above them deciding to start the conversation. Reducing speech can be important, especially if your child is in a burnout state or close to it because in an activated state, your child, their inner ear is actually going to tune in more to 
low frequency sounds that signal on a mammal to mammal level threat and have trouble tuning into your voice, the human voice, which is regulating, okay? So if they're in this heightened space and everything you say is causing them to scream, to growl, to destroy things, say stop talking, you can experiment with simply reducing the speech and moving back into the bodily safety and the facial safety, okay? The next three are more about if we are deciding to talk, okay? So the first is, like we talked about the body moving through molasses, you can think about your words moving through molasses in a sense of like, again, when we're activated, our sentences are gonna be more choppy, we're gonna speed up. It's like being nervous when you're giving a presentation, you'll talk super fast, and that happens to me too. So we wanna be really deliberate about slowing down and elongating the words of our simple sentences that are one at a time. <laughs> it's not a paragraph, right? So an example of a sentence could be, you know, like your child's yelling, screaming, like, I'm hungry, right? And every time you ask them what they want, they're like, I don't know, or stop talking. So it's like kind of like you're stuck in this. There's no, there's no answer here. What you can experiment with is, oh, I can get you a buffet or I can grab you something, right? So you're signaling like a gentle, loving sentence of like, I got this. It's a declarative sentence. And then you can go and get a buffet of choices, right? And then set it down next to them. And you can either sit below them or gently and slowly remove yourself from the room. Okay, so that's just how to apply that one, for example. Okay, so next we have volume. Again, when we're activated as parents, the volume of our voice, and especially if you are a dad, <laughs> I know like with like gender identity and like all the things, I'm not supposed to say dad, but I'm going to because that's what most parents resonate with in this case. And it's the pattern I see. So with dads, often the volume is going up and down, right? They're trying to get the kid's attention when they're activating. They are getting increasingly frustrated. Moms do this too. And so they're increasing the volume of their voice. Okay, let me give you an example. Cooper, please don't touch William's drawing. And then you see him like ripping a piece of it. And you're like, Cooper, I don't want you to destroy William's drawing. Keeps ripping, right? And what's happening is like I'm putting a limit down, which is perceived as threat because of lack of autonomy in me above him. His nervous system is like threat. I need to double down on this and get back in control. So it's like this vicious spiral or cycle. And so what do I do? I'm like, Cooper, I told you not to do that. And then I my volume keeps increasing. But unfortunately, <laughs> It's signaling more threat to the nervous system. And so he keeps going into the action that I wanna stop, okay? So what we're doing is we're just being aware. We're just being aware of like moving through molasses, like keeping the volume down, right? And then the final seventh point, and I'm gonna review the list for you, is called prosody, which is just the vocal inflection of your voice that you can think of like a, a beautiful lullaby that a mom is singing to a baby. 
okay? So like this makes sense on an evolutionary level. Like this is something that parents have intuited throughout human history of like singing to an infant or a child, right? And this is really regulating to the nervous system, but we can incorporate some of that sing-songy voice into our interaction with our PDA child, okay? So these are invitations to experiment. This isn't like a you have to do this, <laughs> okay? So here are the seven tips in review. One, getting physically below your child or encouraging them to get above you. Two, ensuring that your movements are slow and not jerky or too fast, which can be activating. So the tip is to imagine yourself moving through molasses, okay? Three, paying attention to this part, the upper part of your face, and that there's movement and that you're deliberately signaling safety on a subconscious level. Four, simple, reducing the amount of speech because even if we're trying really hard with these next three, sometimes when our child's in burnout or too activated, then we can actually, they actually can't hear the human voice, which is a higher frequency. But when the nervous system is activated, your inner ear actually tunes in to lower frequency sounds. It's like if you're walking in a dark alley and you perceive threat, you're gonna be very attuned to any sounds that could indicate danger. Whereas if you're walking with a friend in a place you perceive as safe with that co-regulation, you're gonna be tuning into that human voice and not so aware of the background sounds because you're not hypervigilant, okay? Five, pace of sentence, okay? So slow, elongated, not paragraph. And again, you can think of the words that you're saying as sort of moving through molasses. Six, volume. We don't want a lot of like volume up and down because that can signal to the subconscious that there's a threat. And lower volumes can imitate those low frequency sounds that are activating to our subconscious brain. And then finally, prosody, which just means the sing-songy tone of your voice. Okay, so what I wanna encourage you guys to do is when we're developing a skill, which these are, the best thing to do is to either pick one that you like, like getting below the child. Okay, this week we're gonna experiment with that. Mom and dad, or mom and mom, or dad and dad, or mom or dad, okay? So we're gonna, I'm gonna try this this week and I just want you to observe if anything shifts. Or you could experiment for 10 minutes at a time each day of like for 10 minutes when they come home from school or 10 minutes when they first wake up, that's my mammal to mammal time right? So we're breaking it down into chunks to make it manageable for you to experiment. And the reason I emphasize experimentation is because this is an empirical question, right? For many of us, our kids have complex brains. They might also be ADHD. They may also be pans pandas. They might also have all these other things going on. So we want to experiment and observe, right? And so what I want to emphasize is like, if you try this, and it seems to make things worse, please don't think that you're wrong or your child's wrong and that I am the expert that was like, well, Casey said this was supposed to be the way and now I'm wrong. No, what you're doing is you're seeing, you're getting clarity of like, oh, I did all, I did seven of these, but only two were really effective. Awesome, stick with those two, drop the rest, right? This isn't a dogma. Okay, this is an invitation. We're working through an experimental mindset. I'm a super dork. 
I'm a social scientist, so this is my jam. And yeah, so that's the invitation without judgment. And then, oh, the other thing we want to encourage is consistency and observation without judgment. So we really want to give you that data for your family so that you can see like it's working. Meaning my kid seems more connected to me. There's more, there's less meltdowns. Oh, they're eating better, right? Which is what we really care about as parents. So if you are someone who wants to go deeper and learn all of these skills, this would be like one of 12 skills that I teach in terms of accommodations and decision making around boundaries, around structural changes in the home and doing it live with me for 12 weeks, plus lots of experts and a community. That's what we do in the Paradigm Shift program. So if this is a skill you want to practice and get good at, because really all of this is practice, right? It's not necessarily intuitive to use signals of safety when your body's activated. I want to invite you to join the wait list. It's in the link in, in my bio, or you can always comment or email us at journey at, at peaceparents.com. We're here to serve you. Hope that this was helpful for you. And I'm super excited to hear how things turn out. Feel free to comment anything you're experiencing, anything you're experimenting with, and any thoughts you have on working through the nervous system lens. All right, everybody. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program.